Welcome to Opus Private Clients Wealth Style Podcast. All of the material discussed on our podcasts have specific themes, and that's to move your wealth and lifestyle forward, increase your purpose, and provide you with clarity and confidence. Opus's mantra is always forward. We have found that regardless of one's wealth, moving your lifestyle forward is the number one priority for our clients. On our podcasts, we'll share our rich 35 years of experience in designing strategies, share clients' experiences, and introduce resources that have positively impacted our clients. We trust that you will enjoy our direct, transparent, and realistic approach to positively impacting the quality of you and your family's lives. Now, on to the show. So hello and welcome to another episode of the Opus Well Style Podcast. My name is Yvonne Watanabe here with my partner, Evan Wall. Evan, what's going on, man? How are you? Doing great. Excited. Got an, uh, an instant classic ahead of us, I'm sure. For sure. For <laughs> sure. So we are extremely excited to have on Bobby Samuelson. Uh, Bobby, really great to have you on. Bobby is the editor of the Life Product Review, um, but really is just an absolute rock star in the life insurance space, probably one of the most relatable, but also knowledgeable experts around all things life insurance. So Bobby, we're, we're really psyched to have you on, man. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Bobby, as we kind of walk through this, you know, we're going to talk about sort of two different topics today, right? We want to have a two-parter for the audience, one around sort of permanent life insurance namely whole life insurance, kind of how it works, how you've used it, sort of what are the things that you were considering as you evaluate all of the product offerings kind of in this space, right? And how other people should consider whole life insurance. And then also talk about, you know, over the last few years, one of the more popular products that have uh, come into the marketplace, um, IUL or, or um, Index Universal Life Insurance, what are the things that people are sort of seeing and considering? So we're, we're again, we're really, really excited to have you on. Appreciate it. That sounds great. I'm ready awesome. to start wherever you want to, want to, want to start. Awesome. I'll, I'll jump in. So uh, just so the audience knows, Bobby uh, is some of the foremost expert on insurance, so much so that some of the biggest insurance companies in the world hire him as a consultant. So he's got unique knowledge that I or Yvonne typically don't hear elsewhere. Um, so that's why, Bob, we're so interested in talking about how you think about it for your own personal plan. And so certainly everyone knows life insurance, the primary intention of life insurance is the death benefit. That being said, especially when you're utilizing whole life insurance as your life insurance, there's cash value that goes along with it. And while cash value is certainly not fixed income, there are some things that are you know, definitely not like fixed income. And then there are some components that can serve a similar purpose in one's financial plan. So can you talk us through that you're thinking on that, like some of the differences and and a likeness uh, as it relates to that? Yeah, I think you're kind of raising a great point, which is at the end of the day, you know, insurance is all about death benefit protection, but mm -hmm. inevitably there are other pieces that kind of come along for the ride. And so there's always this tension in life insurance between the protection elements and the accumulation elements. And the reason why that's so unique to life insurance is unlike car insurance, for example, which is all protection, no accumulation, mm -hmm. um, you don't know if you're gonna get in a car wreck, right? And so from an insurance coverage standpoint, that's a claim-based, uh, uh, sort of a an incident-based insurance policy. Everybody dies. And so inevitably life insurance is going to pay a death benefit. And it's not a question of, of if it's gonna happen, it's a question of when it's gonna happen. And so that's why we call it permanent life insurance is it, it's there for your entire life. It'll pay a claim, you know, for your entire life, whenever you, whenever you die. And so the, the, 
you know, in order to do that, the insurance company says, okay, we're going to create this permanent insurance package. We need to have the ability to allow you to fund those future benefits because unlike car insurance, where some people have wrecks and some people don't, everybody dies. And so ultimately you've got to kind of fund those long-term liabilities of that death benefit. And so intrinsic in every life insurance policy, but particularly whole life, um, which by the way, has been around for about 150 years, effectively unchanged. So the best book I've ever read on life insurance uh, is a 1905 book called mm. The Story of Life Insurance by Burton Hendrick. And he kind of goes through in the first few chapters uh, how permanent life insurance works. And he describes whole life being sold in the mid 1800s that is effectively the same as the whole life being sold today. And so the core kind of concept behind it is, again, it's not like other types of insurance. The value inside of it is, is accruing and growing in order to pay that future that to support that future death benefit, because again, that's a certain event. Um, and so you always have accumulation in a permanent life insurance policy. Uh, there are a couple of the little exceptions that we can get into that later, but in general, you know, the whole life structure where you pay premiums guaranteed, you have guaranteed cash values and ultimately those guaranteed cash values equal your guaranteed death benefit. That's core, that's core insurance. So, so one of the things I always try to tell people who are not familiar with, with, with permanent life insurance is you don't pay extra for cash value. So there's this, theory that the real cost of protection is $10,000 and you're being asked to pay $25,000 so that you can have cash value. That is not how that works. The $10,000 would not support the death benefit for your entire life. You must support the death benefit for your entire life. The $25,000 is what it costs to support the death benefit for your entire life. And the way that works is that the policy has to build value so that later on the cash value is equal to the death benefit. That's how whole life works. That's how whole life's worked since the 1800s. Uh, and so you, you're not paying any extra for the, for, the, for the cash value. So in reality, every permanent insurance policy is a financial instrument, whether you think of it that way or not, because inevitably you're creating this cash value that ultimately does go to support that death benefit. So for me, it's not really a question of, do I want life insurance coverage or do I want cash value? I know cash value is kind of come along for the ride. I know it has to be there in order to support the death benefit long term. The question is, how do you think about that cash value as a part of your financial plan and as a piece of your portfolio? And yeah, and I'd say, by the way, I've come a long way on that. I think early on, in my, I've been doing this for 15 years. Early on in my career, I was working in kind of ultra high end estate planning oriented types of life insurance where the cash value doesn't matter at all. Right. The only thing the client cares about is, is the death benefit. And I learned two things. Number one is most clients aren't like those clients. Okay, so most clients mm -hmm. don't have $100 million they're trying to do estate planning with. Most clients have a multifaceted kind of need structure around death. Sometimes it is estate planning. Sometimes it's income replacement. Sometimes it's business succession planning. Like You name it. There's a lot of different uses for, for death benefit. And so and so not all clients are exactly in that situation. But, but the other thing is every client that I dealt with at the time said they didn't care about cash value. But the real world is actually when, when you find out if you care about cash value or not. So cash value is like flood insurance. It's like you may say you not you don't care about about floods until the flood until the waters are rising, and then the only mm -hmm. thing you want is flood insurance. Okay. Yeah. Well, cash value is flexibility. Cash value is accumulation. Cash value is potential liquidity. Cash value offers all of these things that that people tend to sort of discount in their mind because they don't really understand where it's coming from or why it's there or what it's doing. And then they say, well, all I care about is the premium and the death benefit. That Ask a client who's been in a policy for 10 years. Usually the last thing they care about is the premium. What they care about is what's the overall value package that's been offered to me. And again, cash value is a piece of that. So, so that's why, like again, right out of the gate, I just say, don't, don't think about this as paying extra for cash value. Think about how you properly categorize cash value as a part of the overall plan. 
to achieve the goals you want to achieve. So, so what, what was the transition like from beginning stages, working with ultra high net worth to thinking cash value is not as important to, it sounds like you have a different belief at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some of it's personal too. And I think Mm -hmm. um, you kind of alluded to that in your conversation. So, you know, I started to think about this a lot when I was running product development at MetLife. So I went to go join, I met, joined MetLife in 2013. And again, my background had been mostly kind of high, ultra high end estate planning, life insurance, um, where by the way, you can get policies that are cheap and have no cash value. They also have no flexibility. They put an enormous amount of financial risk on the insurance company. The companies that wrote a lot of that business have taken billions of dollars in write downs on those policies. And in some cases, even basically sunk the insurance company because they wrote those contracts. So if you kind of contrast that, at the time we thought we were getting something for 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 nothing, we thought we were getting something cheap. And the reality was you didn't get the flexibility, which actually ended up counting for a lot when, for example, the estate tax exemption goes up. Fewer clients have a need for the policy and suddenly they're stuck with a contract that has no liquidity. And insurance companies selling the stuff realize this is not profitable. It's actually a, like a black hole for losses. We've got to stop selling selling those contracts. So. That was kind of where the, the world I came from. I went to go work at MetLife. We sold whole life. And it sort of started to dawn on me that, wait a second, there's a much bigger market here, number one. And number two, that this cash value really is important. I'm kind of watching in real time how clients have needs change and they want liquidity in their portfolio. So here I was, head of product development at MetLife, building whole life products for the first time in my life, thinking about, okay, why would someone really want this? Like, what, mm-hmm. how do you use yeah. this cash value in a in a, in a powerful way? Um and so for me, it kind of hit home when a few years ago, I started to think about cash allocations in my own in my own account. And the way this conversation went out or, or happened was, I was talking to my financial advisor, who's an RAA. He's one of my, he's one of my best friends from growing up here in, here in Charlotte, and he knows nothing about life insurance. And so we make a great pair, right? Because I don't know what he does, and he doesn't know anything about what I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so he calls me up and he says, "Hey, you've got some extra cash." let's go grab lunch. I want to talk to you about now that interest rates have gone up, I want to talk to you about kind of some fixed income options. And I said, okay, great. And, um, and I actually had already owned whole life at this point, but I had thought, but I'd done it for kind of a specific planning need. And so we go to lunch. And um, so he starts walking me through all these sort of fixed income brochures and I'm paralyzed by the incredible sort of array of options that he's showing me and all the trade-offs inherent in that. And um, in, in a way that the more that I got into it, the more I realized fixed income investing is actually really hard, even when rates are high. And it's not always natural. It's like, I, I, if I have a certain kind of bucket of cash, it's actually really hard for me to figure out how to deploy that into a comprehensive fixed income strategy. And so the more we talked about it, the more I realized, wait a second, I actually don't, I actually want another way to do this. I want a way where someone else builds the portfolio for me, where they give me some stability, they give me some guarantees, and so I don't have to think about this. I just want to have a yield on my cash for a long-term part of my portfolio um, that's stable and it's bedrocked. And I don't have to think about all these trade-offs that are inherent in any sort of fixed income investment. And so for me, it was I basically gravitated towards simplicity and I ended up buying a pretty significant you know, whole life contract as a long-term allocation to fixed income in my portfolio instead of actually allocating myself to long-term fixed income. So the logic I went through was the insurance company is doing this. It's a mutual company. They have to give me the benefits of that portfolio through the dividend in the contract. So I'm, I'll let them build the portfolio that I can't build on my own. Yeah. The diversified fixed income, private equity, hedge fund, all the stuff insurance companies invest in. I'll let them do that. And I'll reap the benefits of it as a 
whole life policyholder over the long run. Now, this is not a short term cash strategy because you put money in, you're down in the first year. Mm -hmm. But over the long run, that's plays out. And look, I think financial planning is about the long run. My perspective is for the long run. And so it was a nice fit for that part of my portfolio. So that's kind of how I saw it personally. And I think now that I, I think now that I've kind of had my eyes open to truly thinking about whole life as a fixed income alternative, I sort of see it everywhere. Yeah. And I see a lot more application for it than I probably thought before to the point where I bought more than I thought I was going to because I saw the application. Yeah. And, and you know, you mentioned some of the aspects of it. So what, what would you consider the makings of a good fixed income portfolio for you? So for me, it's sort of boiled down to basically five components. And, and again, I mean, I've, I've been around fixed income for a long time. I ran product at MetLife. Like I said, we had an investment area. I talked to those people all the time about what they were buying, what they were investing in. Um, so I've been around it. I think, and I, and I had fixed income investments that honestly I didn't pay any attention to. It's just mm -hmm. that when you actually critically think about it, that's when it dawned on me, it's way more complex. And so for me, it was sort of five things that sort of started to pop up. One is uh, credit quality is very tricky. So if you want to invest in fixed income, you kind of have to figure out where you want to be in terms of the credit quality of your underlying fixed income investments. And me, and I'll speak for, I think probably most people don't have a really good sense for what it what the difference in risk is, for example, between a triple A rated bond and a triple B rated bond. Yep. Like, like I don't have a great intellectual rubric around that. <laughs> I don't have a a natural way to think, oh, that's exactly how much. So so when I see the yield differences, obviously triple B rated bonds have higher yields than triple A rated bonds, but is that worth it or not? And then, and then even if you kind of take a step deeper on that and say, okay, well, what exactly am I buying? What company is issuing this bond? How do I feel about that company? How, how, do, how do I think, what do I think about their business model? Um, yeah, I'll give you an example. So, so a firm, an insurance company was going to buy bonds for another insurance company, uh, buy bonds front, issued by another insurance company. So you got insurance company A looking at buying bonds issued by insurance company B. And so insurance company A is a client of mine and they called me and said, hey, what do you think about insurance company B? As a, as a, you know, looks like the bonds are cheap right now. What do you think? We ended up in, in a 45 minute conversation about insurance company B's balance sheet, business model, product mix, future prospects all over, you know, a few basis points in bond yield to decide if insurance company A wants to buy insurance company B's bonds. I don't have the capacity for that as an individual investor for every bond that I want to buy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that is what it takes to really, to, to actually do a good job in fixing investing. And that's just one, one of five, right? So credit is a big piece. Maturity is another big piece. So in stocks, right? You buy a stock, you can sell a stock tomorrow. You can sell a stock the day after that. It's always fair market value. Bonds are a little bit different in that bonds have explicit maturities. So if you buy a 2030 bond today, you know, you've got a little less than seven years to until the maturity of that bond. And so you look at it and go, okay, so I've got to kind of think about time horizon in my bond investing in a way that I don't have to for my equity investing my, my equity investing. I, I can have a short-term or long-term focus in equities and I'm buying the same, I'm buying the same asset, right? I'm still buying equity shares. Mm -hmm. If you have a long-term focus in bonds, well, you, you need to kind of match that to the bond. If you have a long-term focus, you got to match that to your bond maturity. And so there is this kind of question of, okay, well, how do I actually build a fixed income portfolio that matches my planning needs? Mm -hmm. I need to figure out what my planning needs are and buy bonds that match that up. Well, that's really hard to do. Like, how right. do you know exactly what kind of liquidity you're going to need? How do you know exactly what kind of income you're going to need? And so the usual solution people say Bobby, is, just, sorry to interrupt, but just to simplify for, for the audience, what Bobby's <laughs> referring to as it relates to 
maturity is when when is when are bonds come due? When when do you get the liquidity from that bonds? Versus Bobby, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the versus cash value is just immediately and always available. But correct. for bonds, it's only you're only you're going to get that liquidity when it comes due. Absolutely. There's time. always there's always a fair market value. You can always sell it in the secondary market, mm-hmm. but the bond comes due to your point on a certain calendar date. So right. if you go out and say, I want to buy bonds, first question is, do you want to buy highly rated bonds, low rated bonds, or really low rated bonds, like junk bonds, like what was hot in the 80s, you know, if you yeah. go back and Google all that. So that's kind of first question to your point. Second question is, well, how long do I want to have these bonds? Like when are these bonds going to mature? Are they going to mature next year or 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 30 years from now? And you have to make that decision. You can't just buy the one-year bond because then in one year it's par and you're back to reinvesting the capital. So if you want actually a long year, you know, a, a longer term bond, you got to buy a bond that matures in 15, 20 years, what, to your point. Mm-hmm. So you got to make that, you got to make that decision. And that is also a hard decision. Let me give you like a kind of a funny example for people our age. You could buy a, you could buy a 15 year blockbuster bond in 1995. <laughs> wow. Okay. okay. That was, that was like, actually like the company blockbuster, right? Yeah. Just say. Like <laughs> not, the company, the, not like a right? movie. Yeah. yeah. So two issues there, right? What is the credit quality of Blockbuster in 1995? Actually, probably reasonably good. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. I tried to find it recently. Reasonably good. There was no Netflix in 1995. And so, so things looked pretty good. It was the largest video chain in the country. Right? The DVDs were hot. I mean, 1995 was probably not a bad time if you're looking at Blockbuster's business model to buy a, to buy a bond from Blockbuster. Well, 15 years later, they're bankrupt because Netflix shows up. And so if you'd bought a one-year Blockbuster bond, you would not have had to worry about Netflix. You buy a 15 year blockbuster bond and you got to worry about Netflix. And so not only do you have this kind of credit issue that you have to think about, you got to think about how long you're going to be in that bond mm. and what happens to that business over the next 15, 20 years. So it's, so it's really complicated. The third piece is whatever decisions you make on credit and on maturity. So if you invest high credit, low credit, junk or short, medium, long on the, on the, on the maturity, that has a direct impact on how the prices move in bonds in real time. So most people think of bonds as not being very volatile. Bonds are actually really volatile. And all you have to do is look in 2022 mm-hmm. and see that bond returns were down 15%. Certain corners of the bond market were down way more than that. Bond returns have been super volatile this year. Treasuries have been incredibly volatile this year, so which have no credit risk, theoretically, only mm-hmm. maturity, right. you know, maturity duration risk. And so you think about all these decisions you're making in credit and maturity, and that all plays out on liquidity. So if you've got to sell that bond to your point, Evan, prior to the maturity, because you need the income, because you want to reinvest, because it's a bad deal, or you don't like the bond or whatever, you're subject to whatever the market valuation is at that moment, which means if you need, if anything deviates from plan at all, you are subject to the price of that bond as it bounces around. And it can actually bounce around quite a bit. So liquidity is its own sort of risk profile for bonds because if you need cash and you've got to sell bonds, you're going to be subject to fair market values. And, and those decisions you made elsewhere are going, to, are going to move around like crazy. So that's three. Fourth thing is taxes. So my financial advisor pitched me on muni bonds. Why? Well, because I'm in a high tax bracket. And if I want tax advantage of fixed income investing, muni bonds make sense. The problem with muni bonds is muni bonds are already priced in for the tax advantages. Right. So, so you get a lower yield on a muni bond, even though it's tax free. Okay, well, does that make sense for me? Well, it depends. Is a muni bond issued in the state of North Carolina where I live or not? Because that affects my state. So now I'm into a, a complex tax discussion about whether or not that muni bond actually makes sense for me. Oh, and by the way, muni bonds are also had their own credit and maturity issues because now we're not buying blockbuster bonds. 
or, or you know, XYZ insurance company bonds or whatever. We're buying bonds from like the Charlotte City Waterworks or Birmingham <laughs> Sewage. Like, you, you, yeah. you, know, you have no idea what you think about the credit quality of the Charlotte City Waterworks, <laughs> right, which apparently right, right. I saw in the news is going to get a downgrade here in, in a little bit. <laughs> and so, so who knows, right? So then, so then, so that's four things. And so it, it kind of dawned on me that I, he had given me a Munibomb pamphlet that, you know, man, there's just a lot to this. And then, and then you kind of add the fifth layer, which is, hey, if you don't like the trade-offs between credit and maturity and liquidity and taxation, then you don't have to buy bonds. There are other fixed income substitutes. You can buy, I'm going to rattle off some acronyms, right? CLOs, RMBS, CMBS, ABS, MLPs, REITs. They have their own set of issues. They yeah, have their own have. set of complexities. <laughs> They yeah. had their own sets of trade-offs. Yeah. And so you can't just go, oh, I don't like bonds. I'm going to go invest in CLOs. Oh, my gosh. Well, th that's its own world, which, by the way, as retail investors, we really can't get great access to except through like publicly traded funds, yeah. where, again, you don't really know what's in the fund. So, again, to kind of wrap up this, this thought process, it, it just dawned on me that everybody, every financial advisor seems to walk around under the basic sort of presumption that you should have <laughs> some stocks and some fixed income. And it seems to me that the stocks piece is the one that gets all the attention. It's actually the easiest. It's actually the easier of the two. Mm -hmm. The fixed income piece is actually much harder. And now here's the thing. For the last 35 years, interest rates have been going down, which means fixed income yields have been phenomenal. So in a falling rate environment, you get capital gains returns out of your fixed income portfolio every mm -hmm. time bond prices go, every time bond rates go down. So every time interest rates go down, bond prices go up, which means all you had to do was like have a pulse in the bond market mm -hmm. and you were making money. Yep. And so nobody's complained about the 60-40 portfolio or the 730 portfolio or the kind of modern portfolio theory of a fixed income equity allocation. Nobody's complained about that since 1985 because interest rates have been dropping consistently ever since. So you didn't have to worry about the fixed income piece. And we had all kinds of equity volatility, but nobody had to worry about the fixed income piece. Well, 2022, the, the, the bigger loser of the two was actually fixed income. And now here in 2023, moving into 2024, fixed income has gone absolutely nuts. And so now suddenly everyone's going, wait a second, this thing was on autopilot and now we hit a storm and I got to turn, I, what do I do? I, yeah. I, I thought I thought I just made money in bonds magically. <laughs> um, and so that's so that's where I think, you know, for me, the thought process turned into, um, I don't want to have to make these decisions. I want an alternative asset class that gives me the liquidity, the stability, the diversification, the yield the tax advantages that I want in a fixed income portfolio, it's just not, I'm not actually going to buy fixed income to do that. I'm going to let the insurance company buy fixed in for me, in, income for me, and I'll reap the benefit of that through the policy. And so that was my, again, I went through a lot, but that was my simplified yeah. thought process was fixed income is too hard for me. <laughs> I'll take the, I'll take the easier way out. And it actually, in a lot of ways, the more optimal way out. And the only difference between me and everybody else out there is that I've spent my entire career digging into and understanding this stuff, whereas most people in the world don't really understand what a life insurance policy is. They don't understand how it works. And so to them, it's kind of a black box thing. Uh, but for me, this is what I do. And so mm. for me, it was an easy application to say, wait a second, I'm the ideal client. <laughs> I'm going to go do that. <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned modern portfolio theory, and I want to touch on that in a moment. But you also just kind of briefly mentioned so some of the things that insurance companies buy. So every insurance company is different. We're not talking about any specific, but can you talk to us about what, what generally is held inside of a general account of an insurance of a big mutual insurance company? 
And how do you, how, how do you think about that as it relates to, you know, why you're making these decisions? Yeah. So maybe let me take one step back too. So every permanent insurance policy works the same way. You put a premium in, policy charges come out. Those charges are related to state premium taxes, mortality, commissions, overhead, all that, all that stuff gets baked in. Whatever's left over, the carrier takes and they invest to your point in their general account, right? They're investing it for you. And then if you're in a mutual company structure, when that general account throws off yield, as a, as, as a policyholder, you literally own the mutual company. You are a shareholder in the mutual company. The benefits of those yields come back to the extent they are higher than the guarantees in the contract. The benefits of those yields are paid back as a dividend in your contract. So we use this word dividend as it applies to whole life. Mm-hmm. And, and that, can, that can mean a variety of things in terms of expenses and mortality. But for this conversation for interest, what it means to your point, Evan, is what did the carrier invest in? And if their yield is higher than the guarantee in the co- in the policy, then they pay that yield back in the form of a dividend. So I just want to start there to say that's yep. that's how yep. you get this connection between the general account and the actual whole life policy. And I think it's really important because other types of life insurance that are not participating, not sold by mutual companies, do not have the same one-to-one connection. So on a universal life policy, for example, carrier takes the money, it's assessed policy charges, they invest it in the, in the general account. And then they decide how much of it they want to pass back to the policyholder. And we're going to talk about index UL tomorrow or later on. Yes, same deal for index UL with one extra step. But with whole life, if you're a participating policyholder, you literally own that insurance company. That money can go nowhere else but to the owners of the insurance company, which in this case are the policyholders. Does that make sense? So a mutual insurance company means it is owned by the policyholders as opposed to a public company that is owned by the stockholders. Is that correct? And as a yep. participating policy, it means that you are a policyholder that owns the insurance company. A non-participating policyholder means that you just get whatever the benefits the insurance company wants to give you. Yep. Non-guaranteed, non-guaranteed elements is what they call them. And how okay. how how important was it for you that the insurance company you used be a mutual carrier when you were kind of going through your iteration? Was it like it's a non-starter? I'm not getting unless you were forced to, but it's a non-starter. <laughs> I absolutely want a mutual insurance carrier for my whole life policy or, or were you considering other options on whole life? You're, you pretty much always get mutual company with a participating contract. Yeah. Um, there are <laughs> examples of where that's not the case, but in general, so for me, it was essential. It was also part of the decision of why I used whole life yeah. was I wanted to be a participating policyholder where I knew I had essentially a contractual right to the profits of that insurance company versus being a UL policyholder where I'm at the discretion of the insurance company. Yep. I wanted to be an owner in the insurance company. I want the benefits of that. By the way, you got to pick an insurance company you trust. So not all insurance companies are going to produce the same results over the long run. Mm-hmm. Yep. So understanding the insurance company is key part of it. Um, but yeah, so for me, it's like if I believe in this idea that I'm carrier is going to invest my money for me and I want and I want those returns paid back to me, the clearest and simplest and most straight line way in the insurance world is to buy a participating policy from a mutual company. You you've got a you've got a contractual right to those benefits effectively. You own that company. If they've got distributable earnings, it's coming back to you either in the form of a dividend or they're gonna put it in capital surplus, which is there to support future benefit payouts. It can't go anywhere else. And I've heard you discuss that insurance companies just by the fact of their sheer size will have access to things that the average retail investor would not. Is that right? Correct, yeah. So let's talk about the portfolio they, they put the money in. So ballpark most insurance companies invest between 35% and 65% in cor- traditional corporate bonds so they are effectively building a very diversified 
fixed income portfolio in a way that would be very difficult for a, a retail client to do. For example, they get access to private placement bonds. These are bonds that are not sold in the open market. They are sold through syndications only to private buyers. And, you know, I forget the number, but around 40% of bonds in an insurance company's portfolio were bought directly from the issuer, which means they're better yielding, they're a little less liquid, but they're better yielding, they're better fit for liabilities um, than you get on a normal kind of bond you can buy in the market. So they get, they get a lot of private placement bonds. They have everything from, you know, one-year bonds, one-month bonds, cash, all the way out to 25, 30-year bonds. And they're building that laddered portfolio to support the, the liabilities that they've created, the whole life policies they've sold in this example, um, and to make sure they've got enough liquidity to satisfy when clients want their money, and also enough long duration that they're getting great yields for the long run on that block. So that's kind of the balance on the corporate bond side. So let's just say it's 50% corporate bonds. So what's the other 50%? Uh, they buy mortgages, so residential mortgages, commercial mortgages. Sometimes they actually write those themselves, especially corporate mor uh, commercial mortgages, uh, which is obviously a hot topic right now in the investment world. We can talk about that if you guys mm -hmm. want to. But sure. commercial mortgages uh, is, a, is a pretty big piece of the puzzle. Stru what's called structured credit. So this is essentially basketing lots of different loans into bond structures. And that takes a variety of different forms. So collateralized loan obligations, asset-backed securities, Residential mortgage-backed securities and commercial mortgage-backed securities, those are all structured credit. Very difficult as a retail investor to do anything significant in, in structured credit. That is sort of the game of private equity firms, insurance companies, big asset managers, pensions. You got to be an institutional investor to, to throw around enough weight in the CMBS, RMBS, ABS, CLO world, structured credit world in general to get good, good view into what you're buying and to get great yield. So they buy a lot of that sort of stuff. Uh, they have what's called Schedule BA. Schedule BA is sort of their equity assets. So they'll buy hedge fund partnerships. They'll buy private equity partnerships. They will buy uh, surplus notes from other insurance companies. They will buy tax credits. All kinds of wacky stuff kind of goes in there. A lot of them also own subsidiary companies that are worth a lot. So if you've got um, you know, an insurance company that owns an asset manager, that asset manager throws off profits. That comes back up to the mothership. Uh, they own a group business, for example, that's non-participating. That goes back up to the mothership. So you'll find anywhere from, you know, 5 to 30% of some carriers' balance sheets are just subsidiaries that they own, that they own and operate, that throw profit back up. Uh, farm mortgages are a big category. Dude, you name it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They'll buy stocks sometimes. Uh, so if you, so that's the crazy thing. If you look at the portfolio and you literally, if you go through the statutory filings of an insurance company, which, by the way, are all public, so you can read through detail in as much detail as you want in the financials of how every life insurance company works. And Schedule D is their invested asset schedule. You can go look through literally every bond they have line by line. And I think what will kind of blow you away if you do that is the incredible diversity of the portfolio and the fact that there is no way that you could ever do what they did. Mm -hmm. There's no way. Yeah, you, You'd have to be worth a billion dollars and invest all of your money in fixed income to get even close. And actually, that's one thing we see. Bigger companies that are that are kind of bigger companies that are not that are mutual, right, have really diversified portfolios. If you look at small mutual companies, they they don't have nearly the diversity of asset because they're small. So even companies with a billion, two billion dollars in balance sheet, they are nowhere near as sophisticated from an investment standpoint as the 50, 60, 70, 80, 200 billion dollar companies out there. And so that's the benefit of scale is, again, they're buying assets that really only they and other big institutional investors get access to. And we even see that in the insurance world. Smaller insurance mm -hmm. companies don't have the same access 
as bigger insurance companies. Anybody over $5 billion or so will get access to all the big stuff. There's a lot of little insurance companies out there. They just, they, they tend to go 80, 90% in corporate bonds because that's what's easy. Yes. Yeah, so, so to your original point, right? So when you were looking at solving for this fixed income need with with an advisor, right, on the retail as a retail investor or going within the whole life insurance policy, utilizing the scale of the insurance company to basically meet all of the criteria that you were talking about and have a mutual insurance company who are experts in managing this credit risk that just sort of met all of those pieces together is kind of what I'm hearing from, from yeah. you, right? Let me, let me kind of go back through the five, right? So credit quality. I only make one credit decision with a whole life company or with yeah. a whole life product, which is do I like the company that sold me that, <clears throat> that product? And if you look at, you know, the big four mutual companies, Guardian, Mass Mutual, New York Life, Northwestern, all of them have phenomenal ratings. Yep. Probably better than you would buy if you were out buying corporate bonds yourself. You would probably be buying something lower down on the credit stack than these insurance companies, which are all basically AAA rated or very close to it. And so, and so credit quality, take that off the table. These are 150 plus year old mutual companies with fantastic ratings. Maturity, to your point, I don't have to make the decision on maturities. They make the decision on maturities. I get the yield of the overall basket, but I don't actually have to invest long. I don't have to decide how long I need to invest. The insurance company decides. That directly affects, affects my liquidity. So unlike fixed income, which is volatile and has these mark-to-market adjustments, cash value in whole life is available at par with no fair market adjustment whenever I want it. Uh, and then on top of that, there are tax advantages in a life insurance policy. So tax, I, I some people say tax-free. It's not really tax-free, right? It's tax-controlled. Yep. So I get to decide how my tax incidence is. If I surrender that policy, I got to pay ordinary income on my gains. If I die with the policy, the death benefit's tax-free. If I borrow from the policy, the gains are also taken out tax-free. Yep. So I have total control over my tax incidents. And you know, I would argue on the, on the last point, unlike some of the other complex things where you want to avoid all these trade-offs, whole life is actually very simple and straightforward. It's, it's, a, it's about as easy of a product as you can get. That, again, it has been around basically unchanged for the last 150 years. And so, yeah, so when you click through the five things that became apparent to me when I looked at fixed income, whole life was sort of the magical like the magical asset class yeah. because it, it, I don't have to think about credit. I don't have to really think about, I don't have to think about maturity at all. I have total liquidity whenever I want it. I have complete control of my tax incidents. And it's a very simple and straightforward product. I see the only real catch for whole life is you got to be in it for the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is not a one. So to be clear, I don't have all my money in whole life. I, whole life is a sleeve of my fixed income. Port- it's my long-term fixed income asset class. Yep. It, my short-term fixed income asset class is what everybody does. I've got money markets and one to three month treasuries and stuff, you know, basic stuff, cash, stuff like that. But that's managed. That's a different, that's a different goal. Uh, what I'm trying to do with whole life is create this kind of ballast for my portfolio where no matter what, I know that that whole life policy is going to increase in value every year on a guaranteed basis, period. And then I know over the next 30 or 40 years, I'll get basically corporate bond like returns with money market liquidity, basically. So total liquidity with corporate bond returns and complete control of my tax incidents. That's what I want in a fixed income portfolio. Why would I build it myself? I can't build something like that myself. Yeah. And by the way, the death benefit, right? Which is a whole other component to to the product Which, that, yeah. you know, is is often sort of, you know, hopefully not forgotten about, but it, but a massive benefit that we can't get in our in our in well our- it's so actually, I, I th- this was another good exercise for me too. So I need the death benefit, right? I'm, I'm young, I've got three kids. And so I, I need 
death benefit coverage just like everybody else. And I had term insurance for a while. And then I have a VUL too. I have VULs. I love VULs. Right, different. Variable universal life insurance. Yeah, variable universal life. Totally different animal than whole life. It's like the equity side of the portfolio versus the fixed income side of the portfolio. Two, they're complementary. They're not competitors. Um, but one thing that, that occurred to me was, and again, just to use my example, so I, I had term insurance and now I have whole life and VUL for the same total death benefit amount. And so when you look at the costs of my whole life policy, so let's say the dividend interest rate is just to use round numbers is 5%. And my internal rate of return on cash value is you know 4.25% after 30 years, that's 75 basis points of fees. And so I think a lot of people get hung up on 75 basis points of fee. Well, hold on. I surrendered my term insurance to buy this whole life. So a lot of this is actually paying for the death benefit. Oh, by the way, that is a real benefit. Right. You don't think you're going to die in the next few years, but you might. And this policy has charges in it to account for the fact that if there are a million people just like you, 10 people might die next year. And those charges go to pay those claims. And so over the life of a contract, the present value of the death benefit is equal to the present value of the charges that I'm charged. And so that 75 basis points of drag isn't really 75 basis points of drag because probably 25, 30, 40 basis points of it is actually supporting the death benefit. Right. And that is a real benefit to me as a policyholder and to my family. And so I think a lot of times people get so focused on just the asset class characteristics and they look at the fees and they go, oh, the fees. Well, yeah, because you're actually getting protection and and you don't know if you're, if you're going to be the one who dies in three years and this was the best decision for your family you could possibly have done, or if you're the one who lives to a hundred, you know, and ultimately the cash value equals the death benefit. And you basically never had any death benefit anyway. Yep. And so that's, so that's the, you don't know where you're going to fall on that. And I think people get hung up on the, on the fees, not realizing that every dollar that comes out the door to support that death benefit is a dollar you're going to get back one day. Your family will get back one day when that death benefit pays out, Yeah. which makes the policy more efficient than people think that it is uh, because you're paying, it's not a cost. It's a pre-funding of a future benefit. You just don't know when you're going to receive that benefit. That's right. Yeah. And, and you had mentioned sort of a 30-year sort of time frame out, right? So and I'm seeing you have conversations or present around sort of modern portfolio theory and how, you know, the implementation of whole life actually improves the efficiency of that overall performance. So can you just touch a little bit on that and sort of how, how you've seen it play out over time? Yeah. So it's simple <laughs> math on this. So imagine you have, as a client, we'll call it a 10% volatility budget. So as a client, you're saying, I don't want my portfolio to go down more than 10% in a given year. Okay. So let's just say that that's your, that's your budget. You can't handle it psychologically. Mm -hmm. You can't handle it financially. You, you, you've got a certain volatility tolerance, risk, typically risk tolerance, but I'll, I'll use the math here, right? Volatility tolerance, 10% is it. That's the most drawdown you're willing, you're willing to take. So in a traditional modern portfolio construct, you, you, you allocate some to fixed income, you know, and some to equities so that these two things kind of counterbalance each other so that the total drawdown is within whatever you, whatever you want, your total volatility. And again, obviously volatility is upside and downside, but we'll just talk about risk. Cause that's what, yep. that's what hurts. You know, people <laughs> complain about upside. volatility in the outside. Yeah. They complain right. about volatility in the downside. So, so you say, okay, so hopefully equities when they're down 10, you know, my, my fixed income is up five. And so I, I'm offsetting that, right? And so the idea is if you blend these two things together because they're not perfectly correlated, uh, you can use up that volatility budget, that 10% volatility budget, let's say, with, let's just say, a 60-40 allocation stock to bonds. Well, the problem is both of these things have their own drawdown risk. And, and, and the other problem is they're not perfectly non-correlated. In fact, in 2022, they were both down double digits. 
And so even if for the past 30 plus years, this kind of balancing effect had worked and it kept you within your 10% volatility buffer, in a year where these two things are correlated and they both go down like in 2022 and so far to some degree in 2023, depending exactly how you invested, you, you know, you can blow through your risk tolerance by having a balanced fixed income and equity portfolio. Does that make sense? Yep. Mm -hmm. So, so here's how to think about whole life. What is, how much of your downside risk tolerance does whole life eat up? So fixed income eats up some of it because fixed income is volatile and not perfectly non-correlated stocks. And stocks actually obviously eat up a lot because they're very volatile. And so, so that's 60, 40, you know, 60% equities, 40% bonds. Um, what would it look like if you substituted some of that fixed income for whole life? Whole life doesn't eat up any of your volatility budget because whole life is always an all base whole, whole life contract. So no term blends, just a simple, straightforward whole life policy always increases on a guaranteed basis. There is no, there's risk in that the insurance company blows up, but there is no risk on an annual basis that your cash value decreases. Your cash value is going to increase on a guaranteed basis. So what happens is if you use whole life or part of your fixed income portfolio, you're not eating up any of your risk budgets. Your volatility budget is unaffected. And so now I might be able to say, well, wait a second, if I just did, to, again, to make the math simple, you know, 60, 40 for fixed income and equities to eat up my 10% risk budget. If I took that 40% and put it into whole life, well, now the overall risk of the portfolio has gone down right? because whole life is perfectly uncorrelated and guaranteed to increase. It's, it doesn't eat up an amount. So really what I probably could do is do 20% into whole life, 80% into equities and have the same volatility budget. And so now I've invested more in equities which in the long run should outperform fixed income anyway. And so my overall portfolio outcomes have improved because instead of using traditional fixed income, I've switched over to whole life. And so, and again, for me, this plays out on, hey, I, I view my whole life policy as like my, my bulletproof money. And that allows me to go riskier elsewhere in my portfolio yep. because I don't have to worry about managing volatility the same way because now I've got, I know I've got this money that's only gonna increase on a guaranteed basis. It's only going to grow. And over the long run, it's going to give me returns that look like corporate bonds, but without any of the volatility of corporate bonds. After accounting for, of course, the benefits and costs of the mortality, right? And the fact that I would have had to pay an advisory fee and there are commissions. So once you kind of equalize it all, it's going to give me corporate bond type returns, but without the volatility, which allows me to go riskier on stocks. So I would argue you can create a more efficient overall portfolio by using whole life as a part of a fixed income allocation for the long-term fixed income component. Love it. As, Bobby, as, as expected, instant classic. Yeah. So yeah. Th this is one of those that you should go back and listen to uh, two or three times. There's there's so many nuggets in here. For sure. So Bobby, as we kind of wrap up this particular part of our of our episode today, are there any other things on this topic around whole life insurance specifically that you want to make sure that the listening audience kind of takes away? Yeah. So uh, this is a big thing. I probably sound like I'm, you know, diehard whole life promoter. That is not what I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably a happy consumer first. <laughs> and so like all things that I buy that I love, I tell everybody about it. Uh, but I think the other thing is this, if you are skeptical, and I was skeptical for a long time, coming from, again, not the whole life world, really not understanding how it worked until I went to go with MetLife and started building the products and in charge of that division. Uh, the more you know about this product, the more you understand about how it works, the more you understand about how insurance companies works, the more you will like this product. So I say this all the time, and I really mean it. If you're a skeptic, this is the product for you. Because the more you the more you dig in, the more you're going to figure out how it works. And here, here's the best data point I have on this. So my best friend, when I lived in Texas years ago, 
this dude got a 1590 on his SAT, smart guy. He's an investment guy, like one of the smartest guys I know. And he called me three or four months ago. And I don't talk to him that much anymore. He got married, uh, lives in Nashville. Like, I don't ever talk. And But he called me three or three months ago. And he goes, hey, he goes, hey, man, you are onto something with this life insurance stuff. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, I've been researching whole life. It's like, it's incredible. I was like, oh, my gosh, the last <laughs> phone call I would ever get. But what did he do? Okay, so as a highly analytical and you know finance guy, he works for a hedge fund. He, he dug in. And he read the statutory filing, but he started looking at the products and, and, and the more he dug in, the more he realized, oh, this isn't smoke and mirrors. Yeah. This is this is this is a tried and true true chassis that's been around for 150 years, basically doing the same thing that it does now. And is it perfect? No. Is it is it is it gonna return like equities? No. But as a kind of bedrock piece of the financial plan, you know, that is what this thing does. And you know, so the way I kind of phrase it up sometimes is is what whole life is really designed to do is protect families preserve capital and provide stability don't don't make it more than that yeah. it is not it is not your financial savior it is yeah. not your infinite banking thing okay it's yeah. not, none of that stuff. <laughs> it protects your family it preserves your capital and it provides stability and what that frees you up to do is invest more aggressively elsewhere or manage things differently elsewhere that's 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 why this thing works so well and again so if you're a skeptic the more you dig in the more you analyze, the more you poke at this thing, the more you'll see, oh, this this is stronger. This is actually stronger and better than it looks. And the people out there who knock on whole life, and there's plenty of them, I would argue I've never heard a real cogent informed argument against whole life. Most people who knock on it don't really understand it. They'll talk about the fees without talking about the benefits. They'll talk about the returns without comparing it to the proper benchmark, mm -hmm. right? They'll talk about the insurance companies without actually understanding how the insurance company works. And so, yeah, so if you're a skeptic, take this as a bit of a challenge, right? Dig in, research, and I, and I, you'll come to, I think you'll come to the same conclusions that, that, that I did. And, and my buddy, yeah. you got a 1590 in the SAT, like, come on, there you go. What yeah, else I you love it. Now? I love it. You know, I, I think that's a really good point, right? It's, it's meant to be a complement to the other investment strategies that you would want to include in your portfolio. Again, it's not meant to be the only thing. It's not to, meant to be the savior, but it's meant to complement all of the other things that you have going on in your plan. And I think it's a good, as you said, sort of bedrock, right? Um, so Bobby, thanks for, for the conversation today. You know, we really, really appreciate it. And to you, the listening audience, thanks for tuning in. Um, we're going to be teeing up part two, where we're going to discuss index universal life insurance, uh, one of the most discussed insurance products kind of in the market today. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Style Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is for general public use. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC and your financial representative are not undertaking to provide investment advice or make a recommendation for a specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Opus Private Client and opinions stated are their own. The primary feature of whole life insurance is the death benefit. All whole life insurance policy guarantees are subject to the timely payment of all required premiums and the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Policy loans and withdrawals affect the guarantees by reducing the policy's death benefit and cash values. 
Some whole life policies do not have cash values in the first two years of the policy and don't pay a dividend until the policy's third year. Talk to your financial representative and refer to your individual whole life policy illustration for more information. Dividends are not guaranteed. They are declared annually by Guardian's Board of Director, Yvonne Watanabe and Evan Wool are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities LLC PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA SIPC. Financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not registered in any state or with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. Yvonne's California Insurance License 0H44206. Evans California Insurance License 0H04936. Compliance Approval 2023-163828. Expires October 2025.